Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, with a new U.S. president in office, it's a time to revisit longstanding relationships to see what might change as new policies and attitudes emerge. There are, as always, both opportunities and challenges facing multilateral institutions. In anticipation of the fast-approaching Summit of the Americas, Today, we're going to focus on relations in the Americas from the perspective of Canada, and we have a terrific special guest who will help us do just that. You'll meet him in just a moment, but first we welcome back our America's 360 Roundtable. Say hello to Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan. Hey there, John. Hey, Benjamin. Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson. Hey, John. Hi, Cindy. Duncan Wood, the former director of the center's Mexico Institute and now uh, vice president for new initiatives at the Wilson Center. Hey, John. Brazil Institute director, Ricardo Zuniga. Hey, John. Hi, Ricardo. And uh, we welcome a new member to our team this week, the new director of the Wilson Center's Mexico Institute. Say hello to Andrew Rudman. Hi, Andrew. Hi, John. Great to be here. Great to have you as well. This week's special guest spotlight segment will be moderated by the Canada Institute's director, Christopher Sands. So, Chris, over to you, and you can tell our listeners uh, who will be joining us today. Thank you very much, John. And this is a real honor for me, a real treat, because we have as our special guest the Honorable Pierre Pettigrew. Pierre Pettigrew is one of those names that so many Canadians know because he was Mr. Everything in various cabinets of liberal governments uh, in recent times. He served as Minister of International Trade, Minister of Foreign Affairs, and in fact is now an executive advisor at Deloitte uh, for international clients. Most intriguing, he also represented the riding that Justin Trudeau, the current prime minister, now represents. So he has his finger not just on the pulse of international relations and of Canadian politics, but also on the good people of Pepino, which uh, is, a, is a very important insight. Pierre, welcome. Thank you so much for doing the interview. Well, thank you, Chris. Delighted to be with you today. So, Pierre, as you have watched events unfold with the new Biden administration, we've seen a number of big things. Uh, cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline, talk about Buy American that became part of a uh, an executive order. But at the same time, Justin Trudeau got the first call that President Biden issued, and they're planning to have the first meeting President Biden will have with a foreign leader with Justin Trudeau. What do you make of the early days of the Biden administration and the outlook for what we may see coming from them for Canada-U.S. relations? Well, fundamentally, Chris, what I do see is a very strong policy alignment. If you look at the Biden administration and the Trudeau government, you have remarkable policy alignment. Uh, Similar to what we had uh, between Clinton and uh, quitting at the time when I served in the cabinet, but that never existed between Obama or Harper. Uh, so these should be good years because of this policy alignment on so many issues. Uh, the other element that you I find is the predictability of not only of President Biden, but of his team. The, the people he has appointed are well-known individuals who have 
deep government experience. They're people who like governing, uh, a bit like liberals in Canada, like governing, which you did not have in the previous administration, who was very suspicious of deep Washington and the deep state and this and that. So, but with policy alignment, predictability, fundamentally, I see a nice welcome mat at the door of the White House for the Trudeau administration. Looking a little bit at foreign affairs in particular, there's maybe no bigger issue in Washington or in Ottawa than the relationship with China. Obviously, Canada is caught in some ways in the middle of a great power competition or a rivalry between the U.S. and China. How do you see that changing uh, now that President Biden has taken over from Donald Trump? Biden has evolved over China. I do you know sometimes I hear Americans say, oh, the Obama administration was too naive about China. I don't think that's the case. I think that for many decades, both American governments, our governments in Canada, we worked very hard at integrating China in the international order, and it paid off. Uh, China contributed to the growth of the uh, world economy significantly. What has happened, however, is that when President Xi arrived, he really became far more nationalistic, and he not only stopped the reforms of the economy in China, uh, around state capitalism, but he, on the contrary, reneged on some of the reforms that earlier administrations in China had committed to for joining the WTO. So things have changed, and Biden will have no choice but to challenge many capitalism practices of China. And unlike President Trump, who chose to do it on a one-on-one, as a matter of fact, not only did he throw sanctions at the Chinese, but he also threw sanctions at Canada and the European Union. And Biden will use the alliances, the old multilateral alliances that the United States faced worked hard at building for 75 years. Um, you know, NATO and, the, you know, working with the Germans and the French and the Brits and Canadians and Japanese. And, and I think that he will probably be in a stronger position to extract some concessions from the Chinese if we go as a global community and working around Chinese access to the world economy, which is key and necessary for the Chinese. Because if the Communist Party doesn't deliver growth, it loses all of its legitimacy, and they know that. That brings up the subject of international trade, and this is one of your fortes. I remember that you helped to prepare Canada for the Seattle round that sort of didn't take off. I know you followed this issue very carefully. There are a lot of people who've been focused on whether the WTO can be reformed, and and the Trudeau government started a, a sort of ginger group, the Ottawa group, to get countries thinking about WTO reform. What's your outlook for international trade now? I am not extremely confident that much will happen on the WTO front, at least at the beginning. I think President Biden has such a huge task with uh, the COVID pandemic, with the economic recovery, uh, health care, racial equity. I think the priorities of the uh, Biden administration in the first 18 months will probably be squarely domestic. On the WTO There's not enough appetite in Washington, uh, by and large, for significant WTO reform at this time. But I think, at least as far as the dispute settlement body is concerned, whereas Trump refused to appoint any judges to the appellate body, destroying the uh, dispute settlement body, I'm confident that the United States will again 
reinvigorate the dispute settlement body, which for Canada is fundamental because as a mid-sized country, we need the rule of law. Uh, we're not great bullies. <laughs> we don't have the size of a great bully, and it's not in our DNA. And therefore, the good news is that the Biden administration will re-engage the U.S. at least in the dispute settlement body on that front, and possibly some sectoral negotiations. But I don't expect a huge reform, maybe down the line, though. Another one of your uh, your moments I most remember from when you were in government was chairing the Summit of the Americas in 2001 as they met in Quebec City. Um, that that was a pretty important meeting for the hemisphere. Since then, we haven't seen progress on a free trade area of the Americas. There have been various fits and starts. As we move out of COVID, hopefully, what's your outlook for the hemisphere? And do you think Canada can play a constructive role in helping countries to recover? Well, I, that was one of my biggest disappointment. After Quebec City, there was Mar del Plata in Argentina where the whole thing collapsed. I was very sorry. I remember having a personal confrontation with Chavez who really pulled the plug on the whole free trade area of the Americas. And uh, Kirchner, at that time president of Argentina, was always giving him the floor. And, and between he and I, we had a real, I sat in the Canadian chair at that time. Uh, however, I don't find there is much momentum to, uh, to, uh, there's no, no great appetite to resume these negotiations at this time. Unfortunately, I regret it, but I think that, that we will have to wait some more time for, um, for a more global effort on that front. In the absence, I guess, of a, of a summit like that, are there priorities for Canada in the hemisphere? Traditionally, we think of Haiti, we think of other countries where Canada's played a big role and has been aligned with the U.S. on Venezuela. Are there other priorities that you see? Well, on the business front, uh, Chile is a country that we are very close to. Even the firm where I work now at Deloitte, uh, Deloitte uh, Chile and Deloitte Canada are one single firm. We're totally integrated with the Chilean firm, and there's a lot going on, as you know, in the mining sector between Canadian mining companies and Chilean mining companies. That's the one country where Canada obviously also has a bilateral free trade agreement. It is a country that uh, uh, is a very high priority for the government of Canada. Now, on humanitarian ground and political ground, clearly we're very committed to the organization of American states, We're extremely preoccupied by what's happening in, in Venezuela. Uh, it, it is an absolute tragedy. We've benefited a bit, many, many oil, oil workers from, uh, from the Venezuelan uh, companies are now working in Alberta. And maybe I would be remiss not to ask you about uh, your, your outlook on the USMCA, one of the legacies of the, of the Trump administration. I know it's Kuzma in Canada or, or maybe Aseum in French. I, I don't know if you can put an accent aigu on the E there, but uh, <laughs> what, what's your take? Are we obviously better off than not having an agreement at all? But can we make this agreement work? Yes, I think we can make it work. It, 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 there are elements that were a bit strange from a Republican administration. It, 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 it was interesting to see Republicans uh, demanding that uh, Washington tells automakers how to produce a car. Uh, however, you know, by and large, we've integrated digital elements. We've integrated in, in, in the cusp of many agreements that uh, Obama had negotiated in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, ironically, we recuperated much of the work done at the Trans-Pacific Partnership that the United States had agreed with under Obama that Trump pulled out of, but we reintegrated them in the Cosma and uh, to, to, to the satisfaction. Now, that should work, Chris, because 
as you know, um, we worked uh, with uh, Nancy Pelosi. We needed the support of the Democrats in the House under Trump for this. And uh, we got the support of, of the Democrats, many, many governors, including many Republican governors. So it'll work. It'll work. My colleague, Cindy Arnson, has a question about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Cindy, please go ahead. Uh, I was wondering, Pierre, how has the TPP sort of moved along, if at all, since, you know, the Trump administration pulled out? Because, I mean, I don't think any of us senses a great deal of eagerness on the part of President Biden to rejoin. I think that, you know, the domestic politics of free trade right now are very complicated. Um, but has there been any forward movement in the TPP? Oh, oh yeah. We, 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 the, 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 we were 12 when, when the Obama administration was there and, and involved. Now the other 11 countries, we've signed it, we've ratified it, and we're implementing it now. And it is going places. It is a pretty significant uh, agreement uh, that uh, for us is very helpful because it gives us privileged access to the Japanese market, for instance, that we did not have as Canadians. So in my view, in my view, this is the biggest blunder of the uh, Trump administration because Obama had understood that Asians need a counterweight to the rise of China on their own continent. And the TPP was a very good counterweight to China's rise in a, in a constructive way, not only confronting and humiliating, but building networks of trade and networks and investment privileged by the TPP, um, improving digital connections and all that. So if you are to challenge China, and I think we all agree that we should challenge it, we at the same time don't want to totally sleepwalk towards a Cold War. We would be losing a lot uh, for humanity, in particular when we come to to rebuild the economy so badly damaged by the covid if you if you want to re, if you want to rebuild the economy in the united states you can't have a cold war with china because to get the economies again you need to have people run to, to walmart <laughs> and and if if the washing machine costs a hundred dollars more and your smartphone two hundred dollars more you will not have the economy going again but I agree with your analysis that unfortunately the United States will not reintegrate the TPP. I have to say, you know, from the first time I started watching you on the international stage, I was impressed and you haven't lost a tick. Uh, I'm very impressed. Thank you so much for coming and spending a little time with us on America's 360. Well, thank you for having me. I'm a great admirer of the Wilson Center and I'm honored that you've invited me today. Wonderful. Thank you very, very much, Pierre. Thank you, Chris, and thank you, Pierre. Uh, when we return, you'll hear more from our roundtable. You're listening to America's 360. Welcome back to the America's 360 Roundtable. I'm John Molusky. Chris, let me start with you. You were asking the questions in our last segment with Pierre Pettigrew. Let me ask you a question. What did it mean to Canadians to have uh, President Biden make his first major phone call to Prime Minister Trudeau? For Canadians, I think in many ways, it was the return to normal. That's what presidents of the United States used to do. And uh, it's symbolic if, if he'd called uh, another president first and Canada second, that would have been all right. But they really, they really do see themselves as, 
as sort of America's best friend. And they like the recognition of that uh, symbolically in the first call and also the first meeting that President Biden will have with uh, with a foreign leader will be with Trudeau. And that, that's symbolic, but it's very reassuring to a lot of Canadians. Anything that you heard that you found surprising? No, except that, you know, uh, Pierre Pettigrew is, is someone who has been on the international stage and done very well in business. And it just always impresses me that, you know, events going back to the Seattle ministerial for WTO, which of course, you know, was famous for people protesting in the streets and the round never got off or, or trying to chair a sum to the Americas in the aftermath of 9-11. I mean, it was a really an amazing political career, but he, he recalls the details and, uh, and gets it right. Uh, very impressive figure. Canada has some impressive ministers and he's, he's one of them. Well, so let's flip the script, and we've looked at things from the Canadian perspective. Let's look at Canada from the perspective of the rest of the Americas. And, and, and let's talk about how you see Canada's footprint or presence, regionally speaking. Cindy, can we begin with you? Any thoughts you have in that regard? Sure. Thanks, John. I think for a lot of countries in Latin America, Canada is the, is the non-U.S. Um, it's a major North American power that has always embraced the principles of multilateralism, has not bullied governments, um, believes in human rights and works to advance them around the world, believes in democracy, and is often you know, seen as a, as a sort of counterweight um, to the US government. And Canada hasn't always wanted to play that role. And the financial resources behind its role have also been, um, you know, not necessarily as large as, as Latin American countries would uh, would like. And as uh, Mr. Pettigrew mentioned, a lot of the Canadian investment presence in the region is in the extractive sector. And that, by definition, is a very conflictive one in a number of countries where there are issues of um, land rights and uh, environmental issues and indigenous issues. And so I think Canada has um, overall a very positive reputation in the region and sort of sector by sector, you have to break it down. Benjamin Gaudin. I think Canada has been of late a surprisingly important player in, in foreign policy in Latin America, in part because the U.S. was not playing the productive role, in, in particular on the two biggest crises in the region, which are you know, the Venezuela crisis. Canada is a member of the Lima Group, which is a group of mostly Latin American governments seeking to solve the political and economic crisis in Venezuela, but also in its relationship with Cuba, that it has maintained consistently throughout all of the dramas between the United States and Cuba, and particularly the relationship between the Trudeau family and the Castros. It's been able to be a diplomatic bridge in, in both cases in trying to solve really naughty foreign policy problems, neither of which, of course, have been solved. But now that I think there'll be more foreign policy alignment, as our guest referenced, it'll be easier for the United States, I think, to use Canada as a force multiplier in solving both those really difficult challenges. Ricardo. So, look, I think you could actually argue, he made the point that, that Canada as a mid-sized country has a different set of interests and sort of strategic posture than a uh, superpower does. But this may be the time, the age for mid-sized powers to play the role that Benjamin just uh, noted that uh, I, I can attest to the fact that you see Canadian activism being much greater in the field. They took advantage of what they saw as a, uh, a U.S. withdrawal from the field in some cases in the Americas and other parts of the world. And I think they are seen as somebody, uh, as a diplomatic power that is, that is perfectly content to bring a greater level of activism and engagement and dialogue than was the case in the past. Uh, th that's good for the United States because we are in a, uh, he described 
the beginning of one of the most difficult recent periods in U.S. Uh, relations with the Americas at, at Mar del Plata. Uh, but in fact, if the ideological overlay has eroded since Mar del Plata to some, to some degree, the level of complexity and fragmentation in the Americas has not. In fact, not only is there not appetite right now for a major effort of that along trade route uh, lines, there are very few areas where you can bring countries together uh, uh, with uh, any degree of unanimity. And Canada is an important player in helping us get to a better position. Andrew Rudman. Those are interesting points. And one topic we didn't quite get to um, is Chris asked about USMCA in, in more general terms. But I, I think uh, it will be interesting to see the role that Canada plays vis-a-vis -vis Mexico. Uh, Cindy referenced mining, which is obviously a a sector that Canada is very active in, in Mexico, um, for reasons related to energy policy. Uh, Mexico seems to be shifting back to emphasizing coal more, and, and that will, I think, create some interesting challenges for Canada. There may be Canadian mining interested, interested in that, but obviously that there's a contradiction there to some of the environmental protection issues that, that Canada is involved in. So I think, um, Canada will play the role it, it often plays that Cindy described, but I think with Mexico, given its own commercial interests, it'll be kind of interesting to see where that plays out in the next few years. Uh, but Duncan, just so you know, Duncan will be joining us from time to time. Uh, he is now uh, serving in the role of vice president of new initiatives at the center. And Duncan, you had a chance to listen in on some of Chris's interview with Pierre and, and the discussion of the roundtable. Uh, what thoughts would you like to add to the discussion? Well, I'd like to first of all build off of some of the things that Andrew was saying. And, uh, you know, for, for a number of years in a uh, distant past, I ran a Canadian studies program in Mexico, which was a very peculiar thing to do. And the question that we always had was, where's the beef? You know, there was a lot of nice words. There were a lot of interesting things that were said. And people say, oh, Canada's an important counterbalance to the United States, when it was patently untrue. Um, you know, because Canada simply can't, can't, cannot counterbalance the United States. And when it came to the importance of the relationship, you know, Canada was an important trade partner for Mexico. Um, and it had exponential growth, but it was still minuscule compared to the trade between Mexico and the United States. And I think you see that throughout the region. Cindy's absolutely right in pointing to the importance of the extractive industries. Um, but there are other industries, of course, where Canada has had disputes. And Ricardo will remember very well the dispute between Bombardier and, uh, and Embraer. Um, you know, Canada has adopted a sort of a, a sort of an economic nationalist approach or a mercantilist approach at various points in the, in the past in, in the region, defending its interests and promoting its interests. Um, and I always find it fascinating to look at Canada's role in the region. It's a great convener. It's a great joiner. It's the multilateral country par excellence. But when it comes down to what Canada has to offer, I'm always left a little bit uh, stumped. Yeah, Ricardo. So, Duncan, that's a really interesting point. I'm just picking up a little more on what, what Andrew said about uh, having to watch how this plays out with, with regard to USMCA. We are in a very different moment in this North American relationship. This is the first time that we're seeing, I think, real concern about where we're going in terms of the value chain. And uh, USMCA aside, the direction of events in Mexico is of concern to people who have a major investment there, not just Mexicans and not just Canadians, the rest of the world that has major investments there and that has used 
Mexico for access to the largest consumer market in the, um, on the globe. You're right. I think that's the role that Canada has played in the past. My, the one thing that's in the back of my mind is if conditions change and continue to move in a concerning direction in Mexico, does that mean that Canada's role in this, in this broader value chain is also going to change? Benjamin Gaudin. I, I would say that Canada has a key role for the U.S. Duncan, it's not as a counterbalance, but but as I alluded to earlier, as a force multiplier. I mean, I think the idea that there are messages the United States thinks are more effectively transmitted in Latin America when said by Canada. There are initiatives of the Organization of American States that Canada can promote with the United States participating that might be, you know, receive a worse reception if the United States were always out front. So I don't see it as a counterweight, nor do I think, you know, we wanted to play that role so much as you know, a country that can advocate for human rights and democratic norms in a region that doesn't want to be lectured by the United States all the time. I, I think we're on the same page, Ben, in the sense that I think countries in the region have often talked about it being a counterbalance to the United States. In fact, when you look at it, I think Canada has been of immense utility to U.S. foreign policy. Think of the relationship with Cuba over the years that Canada has maintained and was a very, very important source of intelligence and insight into what was happening in Cuba and what Cuba wanted to get out to the world. Cindy Arnson. A number of people have referenced Canada as the multilateral player par excellence. Um, And I think that comes out so strongly in its unequivocal support for the Organization of American States, which is, you know, the longest standing regional body dealing with hemispheric issues. And it's always lamented uh, when the United States hasn't paid its share, when others haven't paid their fair share. Canada is the strongest um, diplomatic backer in the Americas, I think, um, other than Latin American countries themselves, um, to, you know, to hemispheric regionalism. Chris Sands. Since I mostly focus on Canada, it's interesting to hear these perspectives on Canada. And I think this is something that Canadians themselves, not the diplomats, but a lot of ordinary Canadians don't always appreciate. Uh, The U.S. looms so large in Canadian life. It's like a giant mountain and everybody's on the other side of the mountain, all the Latin American countries. And they don't appreciate the esteem to which they're held, the hopes that people put in their diplomacy. They focus on the U.S. They focus on what they do and how it affects the relationship with the U.S. But what we've seen just in my lifetime watching Canadian foreign policy is it has gradually become more confident, asserting its own point of view, not against the U.S., but a voice even if the U.S. isn't on the same page. And that took a long time to develop. And I think when you, what you hear here from all, all of our colleagues is a recognition that Canada is a player, can have its own voice, and it isn't just an echo chamber for the United States. And I hope that this broadcast will bring that message home to a lot of our Canadian listeners that Chris, the world's Chris, ready for Canada. Does that desire or, or that growing confidence, does that uh, translate into a desire to lead? Is Canada looking to play a larger leadership role or is it happy to be a, a good partner? Well, I, I raised this with regard to the, the WTO Ottawa group that Ottawa convened to try to get countries to talk about uh, how we could do WTO reform. They were the convener, and they wanted to be the convener to start that conversation uh, anew. They were instrumental, actually, the Paul Martin government that uh, Pierre Pettigrew served as foreign minister for in setting up the G20. So Canada is is capable of leading, but as a mid-sized country, it wants to lead with a group. It, it wants to bring others to the team. It doesn't feel it can change everything by itself, but it does feel it can be the spark plug that that keeps the uh, international engine humming. And I, I, I salute them for it. And Honestly, I just don't think a lot of Canadians appreciate just how valued that is around the world. Andrew Rudman. 
You know, picking up on what Chris was just saying, I, I kind of wonder if the U.S. decision not to be in TPP kind of gives Canada uh, an opportunity to lead that it other right. It would inevitably have been overshadowed by the U.S. if the U.S. were not if the U.S. were in TPP. So maybe it does give Canada a, a different route, a different opportunity. Any thoughts on the emergence of Canada, the growing role of Canada, not just in the region, but in the world? Does that sort of nudge uh, uh, China, I, I should say, I'm sorry, not Canada. Does that sort of nudge Canada aside? Who doesn't it nudge aside? Well, yeah, I mean, look, that's look, sort look, of I mean, what the, I'm thinking. The reality is, look, certainly, you know, uh, it's interesting, of course, because Canada has a longstanding relationship with Asia um, and, uh, and a trade relationship, a, a cultural relationship. Uh, even beyond that of uh, of the United States in many cases, in many ways. So this is not uh, new terrain at all. Um, the, the challenge, I think, that Pierre highlighted is very important to underscore here. This A lot of this has to do with sheep. And much of the way that we are all dealing with the world is, and what maybe is a unifying factor, is she's nationalism, she's... Um, really aggression against uh, neighbors and in the kind of international economy. And that is not so much that we're all being overshadowed. It's that we're all being challenged. And um, that, I think, is one unifying factor, actually. Uh, Duncan, I know you have something to say, and Benjamin, you as well. Just a very, very quick point. I mean, I think for a while there, it looked as though Canada was uh, had, had a similar relationship with China as, uh, as a lot of the other countries in the Americas, which was it became an important, uh, China became an important market for Canada's commodities. And uh, you know, it raised those conversations once again in Canada about the need to diversify away from the United States, that elusive dream that so many countries have, uh, have, have had in the past and uh, you know, ultimately has led nowhere for either Canada or Mexico. Um, you know, it seems as though, even though they are able to diversify to a certain degree, you can never really escape the massive economic gravity that is the United States. I'd like to just refer back to Pierre Pettigrew, our guest, and what he said about China specifically, which is that, you know, to be effective in counterbalancing China, the U.S. requires allies. So I think here it's not a question of, of Canada being pushed aside, but rather the foreign policy alignment between Canada and the United States, much like the, the Biden administration approach to Europe, says that you can only succeed in pushing back on some of China's, for example, uh, trade practices if you do it in part of this coalition. So I think, you know, rather than saying China's kind of overshadowing Canada, it's making an even more critical ally for poor foreign policy coordination. And I would just add on that. I, I think one of the things Canada has done for the world's relationship with China is it, it's shown wolf diplomacy and kind of Chinese aggression in very bold colors. The two Michaels, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, uh, who were taken hostage, the way that Canada was treated, not just on trade issues, but in, in very nasty ways. There's an advantage to being Canada, which is generally a nice country, which is when another country beats the crap out of it, it kind of exposes them as a bully. And I don't know that if China had taken the U.S. on straight, there would have been global sympathy uh, or, or a re-evaluation of China. But for Canada to have stood firm, but nonetheless taken quite a bit of abuse and unfair treatment, I think that resonates with Asians. I think it resonates with people all over the world. And so in that sense, Canada's added to the discussion as well. Sort of the uh, the eight hundred pound gorilla or the elephant in the room, whatever metaphor you you prefer, in all international relations discussions these days is COVID nineteen, the pandemic. Uh, how has Canada's response to COVID nineteen positioned itself as a, a leader in the hemisphere? 
Oh dear. Uh, I, I feel bad on this one. We were doing so well. Canada, like a lot of countries, doesn't have uh, a great deal of domestic vaccine capability. It did have funds. And so it invested in several of the vaccines with pre-orders to try to help uh, fund the R&D. Um, the, the problem, unfortunately, is that while they have 157 million doses of various vaccines on order. They're all on back order. And there's all this concern that the European Union might jump ahead of them, the US might jump ahead of them. And they're feeling, I think, like they're trying to do everything right, but they're still a little bit uh, on the back foot. And that's been tough for the Trudeau government. If if anything, I think Canada would get a lot of sympathy from other countries who are in a very similar boat, struggling to try to find a way to respond. This has been a terrific discussion. We're almost out of time, but I want to go around. Anyone, a final thought? Anybody have a final thought they want to add? You know, we've we've gone in a non-linear fashion and covered a lot of ground, but we have covered a lot of ground. All right. And we will leave it there. Thank you, everyone. Terrific discussion. Look forward to seeing you again next time. Until then, uh, for all of us at the Wilson Center and America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.